Berenson's Diary, 14th July. I don't know why I am writing this. That's not true. Maybe I do know and just don't want to admit it to myself. I don't even know what to call it. This thing I am writing, it feels a little pretentious to call it a diary. It's not like I have anything to say. Any Frank kept a diary or Samuel Pepys, not someone like me. Calling it a journal sounds too academic somehow. As if I should write in it every day and I don't want to. If it becomes a core, I will never keep it up. Maybe I will call it nothing. An unnamed something that I occasionally write in. I like that better. Once you name something, it stops you from seeing all of it or why it matters. You focus on the word, which is just the tiniest part, really the tip of an of an iceberg. I have never been that comfortable with words. I always think in pictures, express myself with images, so I would never have started writing this if it weren't for Gabriel. I have been feeling depressed lately, but a few things I thought I was doing a good job of hiding it, but he noticed. Of course, he did. He notices everything. He asked how the painting was going. I said it wasn't. He got me a glass of wine and I sat at the kitchen table while he cooked. I like watching Gabriel move around the kitchen. He is a graceful cook, elegant, balletic, organized, unlike me, I just make a mess. Talk to me, he said. There's nothing to say. I just get so stuck in my head. Sometimes I feel like I am wading through mud. Why don't you try writing things down, keeping some kind of record? That might help. Yes, I suppose so. I'll try it. Don't just try it, darling. Do it. I will. He kept nagging me, but I did nothing about it. And then, a few days later, he presented me with this little book to write in. It has a black leather cover and thick white blank papers, pages. I ran my hand across the right page feeling its smoothness then sharpened my pencil and began and he was right of course i feel better already writing this down is providing a kind of release an outlet a space to express myself a bit like therapy i suppose gabriel didn't say it but i could tell he is concerned about me and if i am going to be honest and I may as well be. The reason I agreed to keep this diary was to reassure him, prove that I am okay. I can't bear that thought of him worrying about me. I don't ever want to cause him any distress to make him unhappy or cause him pain. I love Gabriel so much. He is without doubt the love of my life. I love him so totally, completely sometimes it threatens to overwhelm me. Sometimes I think, no, I won't write about that. This is going to be a joyful record of ideas and images that inspire my artistically things that make 
creative impact on me i am only going to write positive happy normal thoughts no crazy thoughts allowed chapter 1 alicia berenson was 33 years old when she killed her husband they had been married for 7 years they were both artists alicia was a painter and gabriel was a well-known fashion photographer he had a distinctive style shooting semi-starved semi-naked women at strange unflattering angles since his death the price of his photograph has increased astronomical astronomically i find his stuff stuff rather slick and shallow to be honest it has none of the visceral quality of alicia's best work of course i don't know enough about art so to say whether alicia berenson will stand the test of time as a painter her talent will always be overshadowed by her notoriety so it's hard to be objective and you might well accuse me of being biased all i can offer is my opinion for what it's worth and to me alicia was a kind of genius apart from her technical skill her painting have a uncanny ability to grab your attention by the throat almost and hold it in a vice like grip gabriel bernson was murdered 6 years ago he was 44 years old he was killed on the 25th of august it was an unusually hot summer you may remember with some of the highest temperature ever recorded the day he died was hottest of the year on the last day of his life gabriel rose early a car collected him at 5:15 a.m. from the house he shared with alicia in northwest london on the edge of hampstead heath heath and he was driven to a shoot in shoreditch he spent the day photographing model on a rooftop for work Not much is known about Alicia's movement. She had an upcoming exhibition and was behind with her work. It's likely she spent the day painting in the summer house at the end of the garden which she had recently converted into a studio. In the end, Gabriel's shoot ran late and he wasn't driven home until 11 p.m. Half an hour later, their neighbor Bobby Hellman heard several gunshots babi phoned the police and a car was dispatched from the station on heverstock hill at 11:35 pm it arrived at berenson's house in just under 3 minutes the front door was open the house was in pitch black darkness none of the light switches worked The officers made their way along the hallway and into the living room. They shone torches around the loom room illuminating it in intermittent beam of light. Alicia was discovered standing by the fireplace. Her white dress glowed 
ghost-like in the torchlight. Alicia seemed obvious to the presence of the police. She was immobilized, frozen, a statue carved from ice, with her strange, frightened look on her face as if confronting some unseen terror. A gun was on the floor next to it. In the shadows, Gabriel was seated, motionless, bound to a chair with wire warped around his ankle and wrist. At first, the officers thought he was alive. His head was lolling slightly to one side as if he were unconscious. Then a beam of light revealed Gabriel had been shot several times in the face. His handsome feathers were gone forever, leaving a shattered, blackened, bloody mess. The wall behind him was sprayed with a fragment of skull, brain, hair and blood. The blood was everywhere, splashed on the wall, running in the dark rivulets along the floor, along the grain of the wooden floorboard. The officer assumed it was Gabriel's blood, but there was too much of it, and then something glinted in the torchlight. A knife was on the floor by Alicia's feet. Another beam of light revealed the blood spattered on Alicia's white dress. An officer grabbed her arm and held them up to the light. There was a deep cut across the vein in her wrist, fresh cut, bleeding hard. Alicia fought off the attempts to save her life. It took three officers to restrain her. She was taken to the Royal Free Hospital only a few minutes away. She collapsed and lost consciousness on the way there. She had lost a little of blood, a lot of blood, but she survived. The following day, she lay in the bed in a private room at the hospital. The police questioned her in the presence of her solicitor. Alicia remained silent throughout the interview. Her lips were pale, bloodless. They fluttered occasionally but formed no words, but no sounds. She answered no questions. She could not, would not speak nor did she speak when charged with Gabriel's mother. She remained silent. When she was placed under arrest, refusing to deny her guilt or confess it. Alicia never spoke again. Her enduring silence turned this story from a commonplace domestic tragedy into something far grander, a mystery, an enigma that gripped the headline and captured the public imagination for months to come. Alicia remained silent, but she made one statement, a painting. It was begin when she was discharged from the hospital and placed under house arrest before the trial. According to the court-appointed psychiatric nurse, Alicia barely ate or slept. All she did was paint. Normally, Alicia labored weeks, even months before embarking on a new picture. 
making endless sketches arranging and rearranging the composition experimenting with colors and form a long gestation followed by a protracted birth as each brush brush stroke was painstaking applied now however she drastically altered her creative process completing this painting within a few days of her husband's murder and for most uh, and for most people this was enough to condemn her returning to the studio so soon after gabriel's death betrayed an extraordinary insensitivity the monstrous lack of rumors of cold-blooded killer perhaps but let us not forget that while elicia berenson may be murdered she was also an artist it makes perfect sense to me at least that uh, she should pick up her brushes and paint and express her complicated emotions on canvas no wonder that for once painting came to her with such ease if grief can be called easy the painting was a self portrait she entitled it in the bottom left hand corner of the canvas in light blue green greek lettering one word alcestis Chapter 2 Alcestis is the heroine of Greek myth a love story of saddest kind Alcestis willingly sacrifices her life for her husband Ad- Admetus dying in his place when no one else will an unsettling myth of self sacrifice it was unclear how it related to Elysia's situation The true meaning of the illusion remained unknown to me for some times until one day the truth came to light. But I am going too fast. I am getting ahead of myself. I must start at the beginning and let events speak for themselves. I mustn't color them, twist them or tell any lie. I will proceed step by step, slowly and courteously. but where to begin i should introduce myself but perhaps not quite yet after all i am not the hero of this tale this is elicia berenson's story so i must begin with her and the alcestis the painting is a self portrait depicting elicia in her studio at home in the day after the murder standing before an easel and a canvas holding a paint brush she is naked her body is rendered in unsparing detail strands on long red hair falling across bony shoulders blue vein visible beneath translucent skin fresh fresh scars on both of her wrist she is holding a paint brush between her fingers it's dripping red paint or is it blood she is captured in the act of painting and yet the canvas is blank 
as is her expression her head is turned over her shoulder and she stares straight out at us mouth open lip lips parted mute during the trial jean felix martin who managed the small uh, soho gallery that represented alicia made the controversial decision uh, decried by many as sentimentalist and macabre uh, macabre to exhibit the alcestis the fact the artist was currently in the dock for killing her husband meant for the first time in the gallery's long history there was there were queues outside the entrance i stood in line with the other uh, prurient art lover waiting my turn by the neon red light of a shop next door one by one we shuffled inside once in the gallery we were herded towards the painting like an excitable crowd at a fair ground making its way through a haunted house eventually i found myself at the front of the line and was confronted with alcestis i stared at the painting staring into alicia's face trying to interpret the look in her eyes trying to understand but the portrait defied me alicia stared back at me a blank mask unreadable impenetrable i could divine neither innocence nor guilt in her expression other people found her easier to read pure evil whispering the woman behind me isn't she her complaining agreed cold blooded bitch a little unfair i thought considering alicia's guilt had yet to be proven but in truth it was a foregone conclusion the tabloids had cast her as a villain from the start a femme fatale a black widow a monster the fact such as they were were simple alicia was found alone with gabriel's body only her fingerprints were on the gun there was never any doubt she killed gabriel why she killed him on the other hand remained a mystery the murderer was debated in the media and different theories was espoused in print and radio on the morning sh- chart show experts were brought in into explain condemn the justify alicia's action she must have been a victim of domestic abuse surely pushed too far before finally exploding another theory involved a sex game gone wrong the husband was found tied up wasn't he some su- uh, suspected it was old fashioned jealousy that drove elicia to murder another woman probably but at the trial gabriel was described by his brother as a devoted husband deeply in love with his wife 
well what about money alicia didn't stand to gain much by his death she was the one who had money inherited from her father and so it went on endless speculation no answers only more questions about alicia's motives and her subsequent silence why did she refuse to speak what did it mean was she hiding something protecting someone or if if so who and why at the time i remember thinking that while everyone was talking writing arguing about alicia at the heart of this frantic noisy activity there was a void a silence a phoenix during the trial the judge took a dim view of alicia's persistent refusal to speak innocent people mr justice alverstone pointed out tended to proclaim their innocence loudly and often alicia not only remained silent but she showed no visible sign to remorse she didn't cry once throughout the trial a fact made much of it in the press her face remained unmoved cold frozen the defense had little choice but no but to enter a plea to a plea of a diminished responsibility alicia had a long history of mental health problems it was claimed dating back to her childhood the judge dismissed a lot of this as hearsay but in the end he allowed himself to be swayed by professor lazarus diomets professor of forensic psychiatry at empirical college and clinical director of the grove a secure forensic unit in north london professor diomets argued that alicia's refusal to speak was in itself evidence of profound psychological distress and she should be sentenced accordingly this was a rather roundabout way of saying something that psychiatrists don't like putting bluntly diomets was saying alicia was mad it was the only explanation that made any sense why else tie the man you love to a chair and shoot him in the face at close range and then express no remorse give no explanation not even speak she must be mad she had to be in the end justice alvestone accepted the plea of diminished responsibility and advised the jury to follow suit alicia was subsequently admitted to the group under the supervision of the same professor diomets who testimony had been so influential to the judge the truth is if alicia weren't mad that is if her silence were merely an act a performance for the benefit of the jury then it had worked she was spread a lengthy prison sentence and if she proceeded to make a full recovery she might well be discharged in a few years surely now was the time to begin faking this recovery uh, 
to utter a few words here and there then a few more to slowly communicate some kind of remorse but no week followed week months followed months and then year passed and still alicia didn't speak there was simply silence and so with no further revelation forthcoming the disappointment media eventually lost interest in alicia berenson she joined the ranks of other briefly famous murderers faces were remembered but whose name we forget not all of us it must be said some people myself included continued to be fascinated by the myth of alicia berenson and her enduring silence as a psychotherapist it was obvious to me that he suffered a severe trauma surrounding gabriel's death and this silence was a manifestation of the that trauma unable to come to terms with what she had done alicia stuttered stuttered and came to a halt like a broken car i wanted to help help start her up again help alicia to tell her story to heal and get well i wanted to fix her without wishing to sound boastful i felt uniquely qualified to help alicia berenson i am a forensic psychotherapist and used to working with some of the most damaged vulnerable member of the society and sometimes about alicia's story resonated with her with me personally i felt a profound empathy with her right from the start unfortunately i was still working at boardmoor in those days and so treating alicia would have should have remained an ideal fantasy had not fate unexpectedly intervened near 6 years after alicia was admitted the position of forensic psychotherapist became available at the grove as soon as i saw the advert i knew i had no choice i followed my gut and applied for the job my name is theo fabo i am 42 years old and i became a psychotherapist because i was fucked up that's the truth though it's not what i said during the job interview when the question was put to me what drew you to psychotherapy do you think asked indira sharma peering at me over the rim of her owlish glasses indira was a consultant psychotherapist at the grove she was in her late 50s with a round attractive face and long jet back hair streaked with gray she gave me a small smile as if to reassure me this was an easy question a warm up volley a precursor of trickier shots to follow i hesitated i could feel other member of the panel looking at me i remained unconscious of 
maintaining eye contact as i trotted out a rehearsed response a sympathetic tale about working part time in a car home as a teenager and how this inspired an interest in psychology which in turn led to a post graduate study of psychotherapy and so on i wanted to help people i suppose i said with a shrug that's it really which was bullshit i mean of course i wanted to help people but that was a secondary aim particularly at the time i started training the real motive was purely selfish i was on a quest to help myself i believed the same is true for most people who go into mental health we are drawn to this particular profession because we are damaged we study psychology to heal ourselves whether we are prepared to admit this or not is another question as human being our earliest years reside in a land before memory we like to think of ourselves as emerging from this from this primordial fog with our characters fully formed like aphrodite rising perfect from the sea foam but thanks to increasing research into the development of our brain we know this is not the case we are born with a brain half formed more like a muddy lump of clay that uh, of an divine olympian as the psychoanalyst donald winnicott put it there is no such thing as the baby the development of our personalities doesn't take place in isolation but in relationship with other we are shaped and completed by unseen unremembered forces namely our parents this is frightening for obvious reason who knows what indignities we suffer what torments and abuses in this land before memory our character was formed without us even knowing it in my case i grew up feeling edgy afraid anxious this anxiety seemed to predate my existence and exist independently of me but i suspect it originated in my relationship with my father around whom i was never safe my father's unpredictable and arbitrary rages made any situation no matter how benign into a potential minefield an innocuous remark or a dissenting voice would trigger his anger and set off a series of explosions from which there was no refuge the house shook as he shouted chasing me upstairs into my room i would drive into the bed and slide under it against the wall i would breathe in a feathery air praying the bricks would shallow me up and i would disappear but his hand would grab hold of me drag me out of to meet my fate the belt would be pulled off 
and I wrestled in the air before it struck. Each successive blow knocking me sideways, burning my flesh. Then the wiping would be over. As abruptly as it had begun, I would be tossed to the floor, landing in a crumpled heap. A raged doll discarded by an angered toddler. I was never sure what I had done to trigger his anger or if I deserve it. I have asked my mother why my father was always so angry with me and she would give a disappearing shrug and say, How should I know? Your father is completely mad. When she said he was mad, she wasn't joking. Where he to be? Assessed by a psychiatric today, I suspect my father would be diagnosed with a personality disorder, an illness which went untreated for a duration of his life. The result was a childhood and adolescence dominated by hysteria and physical violence, threats, tears and breaking glass. There were moments of happiness, of course, usually when my father was away from home. I remembered one winter when he was in America on a business trip for a month. For 30 days, my mother and I had free reign of the house and garden without his watchful eyes. I snowed heavily in London that December, and the whole of of our garden was buried beneath a thick, crisp white carpet. Mum and I had made a snowman. Unconsciously or not, we built him to represent our absent master. I christened him Dad, and with his big belly, two black-stoned eyes, two slanted twigs from stern eyebrows, there was indeed an uncanny resemblance. We completed the illusion by giving him my father's gloves, hat, and umbrella. And we then proceeded to pelt him violently with snowballs, giggling like naughty children. There was a heavy snowstorm that night. My mother went to bed and I pretended to sleep. Then I snuck out of the garden and stood under the falling snow. I held my hand outstretched, catching flakes watching them vanish on my hand tips. I felt joyous and frustrating at the same time and I spoke to some truth. I couldn't express my vocabulary was so limited, my words too loose a net in which to catch it. Somehow grasping at vanishing snowflakes is looking grasping at happiness. An act of possession which instantly give way to nothing. It reminded me that there was a world outside this house, a world of vastness and unimaginable beauty, a world that for now remained out of my reach. That memory had returned repeatedly to me over this year. It's as if the misery that surrounded It made the grief movement of freedom burn even brighter. A tiny light surrounded my darkness. My only hope of survival, I realized, was to retreat, psychically as well as physically. 
I had to get away far away. Only then I would be safe. And eventually at 18 I got the grace. I needed to secure a place at university. I left that semi-detached prison in Surrey and I thought I was free. I was wrong. I didn't know it then but it was too late. I had internalized my father's, interjected him, buried him deep in my unconsciousness. No matter how far I ran, I carried him with me whenever I went. I was pursued by an internal relentless chorus of furies all with his voice, shrinking that I was worthless, shameful failure. During my first term at university, that first cold winter, the voices got so bad, so paralyzing that controlled me, immobilized my fear. I was unable to go out, socialize or make friends. I might as well have never left home. It was hopeless. I was defeated, trapped, backed into a corner, no way out. Only one solution presented itself. I went from chemist to chemist, buying packets of paracetamol. I bought only a few packets at a time to avoid a rousing suspicion. But I needn't have worried. No one paid me the least attention. I was clearly as invisible as I felt. It was cold in my room and my fingers were numb and clumsy as I tore the open packets. It took an immense effort to shallow all the tablets but I forced them all down. Pill after bitter pill. Then I crawled into my uncomfortable narrow bed. I shut my eyes and waited for death. But death didn't come. Instead, a shearing gut-wrenched pain tore through my insides. I doubled up and vomited, throwing up bile and half-digested pills all over myself. I lay in the dark, a fire burning in my stomach for what seemed like eternity. And then slowly in darkness, I realized something. I didn't want to die, not yet, not when I haven't lived. And this gave me a kind of hope, however murky and ill defined it propelled at me any rate to acknowledge that i couldn't do this alone i needed help i found it in the form of roth a psychotherapist referred to me through the university counseling service ruth was white-haired and plump and there was something grandmotherly about her she had a sympathetic smile a smile i wanted to believe in she didn't say much at first she just listened while I talked. I talked about my childhood, my home, my parents. And as I talked, I found that no matter how distressing the details I relate, I could feel nothing. I was disconnected from my emotions. Like a hand served from a wrist. I talked about painful memories and suicidal impulses but couldn't feel them. I would however occasionally look up at Ruth's face and to my surprise tears would be collecting in her eyes as she listened. 
This may seem hard to grasp, but those tears were not hers. They were mine. At the time, I didn't understand, but that's how therapy works. A patient delegates his unacceptable feelings to his therapist, and she holds everything he is afraid to feel, and she feels it for him. And then, ever so slowly, she feeds his feelings back to him as Ruth fed mine back to me. We continued seeing each other for several years, Ruth and I. She remained the one constant in my life. Through her, I internalized a new kind of relationship with other human beings, one based on mutual respect, honesty and kindness, not re-discriminating anger and violence. I slowly started to feel differently inside about myself, less empty, more capable of feeling less afraid. The hateful internal chorus never entirely left me, but I now had Ruth's voice to counter it, and I paid less attention. As a result, the voices in my head grew quieter and would temporarily vanish. I would feel peaceful and happy sometimes. It was obvious that psychotherapy had quite literally saved my life, and more importantly, it had transformed the quality of that life. The talking cure was central to whom I became. In the very profound sense, it defined me. It was, I knew, my vocation. After university, I trained a psychotherapist in London. Throughout my training, I continued seeing Ruth. She remained supportive and encouraging, although she warned me to be realistic about the path. I was undertaking. It's no walk in the parks, was how she put it. She was right. Working with patients, getting my hands dirty, well, it proved far from comfortable. I remember my first visit to secure psychiatric unit. Within a few minutes of my arrival, a patient had pulled down his pants, squatted and defected in front of me. A stinking pile of shit and subsequent incidents less stomach churning but just as dramatic messy both suicidal attempts as self-harm uncontained hysteria and grief all felt more than I could bear but each time somehow I drew into hitherto untrapped resilience it got easier. It's odd how quickly one adapts to strange new world of a psychiatric unit. You became increasingly comfortable with madness and not just the madness of others but your own. We are all crazy, I believed, just in different ways, which is why and how I related to Alicia Berenson. I was one of the lucky ones, thanks to successful therapeutic intervention at a young age, I was able to pull back from the brink of psychic darkness. In my mind, however, the other narrative remained forever a possibility. I might have gone crazy and ended my days logged in an institution like Elysia, 
there but for the grace of god of course i couldn't say any of this to indira sharma when she asked why i became a psychotherapist it was an interview panel after all and if nothing else i knew how to play the game in the end i said i believe the training makes you into a psychotherapist regardless of your initial intention in the noted sagli yes quite right very true the interview went well my experience of working at boardmore gave me an edge indira said demonstrating i could cope with extreme psychological distress i was offered the job on the spot and i accepted one month later i was on my way to the crew chapter 4 i arrived at the crew pursued by an icy january wind the bare trees stood like skeletons along the road the sky was white heavy with snow that had yet to fall i stood outside the entrance and reached for my cigarettes in my pocket i hadn't smoked in a week i would promised myself that this time i meant it i would quit for good yet here i was already giving in i let one feeling annoyed with myself psychotherapists tend to view smoking as an unresolved addiction one that any decent therapist should have worked through and overcome i didn't want to walk in reeking in cigarettes so i popped a couple of mints into my mouth i chewed them while i smoked hopping from foot to foot i was shivering but if i am honest it was more with nervous than cold i was having doubts my consultant at boardmore had made no bones about saying i was making a mistake he hinted a promising career was being cut short by my departure and he was sniffy about the group the professor diomedes in a particular an unorthodox an unorthodox man does a lot work with group relations worked with folks for a while ran some kind of alternative therapeutic community in 80s in hertfordshire not economically viable those models of therapy especially today he hesitated a second then went on in a lower voice i am not trying to scare you though but i have heard rumbling about that place getting exed you would find yourself out of a job in 6 months are you sure you won't reconsider i hesitated but only out of politeness quite sure i said he shook his head seems like curiosity said to me but if you have made your decision i didn't tell him about alicia bernson about my desire to treat her i could have put it in term he might understand 
that working with her might lead to a book of publications of some kind but i knew there was a little point he would still say i was making a mistake perhaps he was right i was about to find out i stubbed out my cigarette banished my nerve and went inside the groove was located in oldest part of edware hospital the original red brick victorian building had long since been surrounded and dropped by larger and generally uglier additions and extensions the groove lay in the heart of this complex the only hint of this dangerous occupant was the line of security camera pressed on the fence like watching birds of prey in the reception every effort have been made to make it appear friendly large bureau couches crude childish artwork by the patients tapped to the walls it looked to me more like a kindergarten than a secure psychiatric unit a tall man appeared at my side he grinned at me and held out his hand he introduced himself yuri head psychiatric nurse welcome to the group he said not much for a welcoming committee i am afraid just me yuri was good looking well built and in his late 30s he had dark hair and a tribal tattoo creeping up his neck above his collar he smelled of tobacco and too much sweet sweet after shave and although he spoke with an accent his english was perfect i moved here from latvia 7 years ago he said and i didn't speak a word of english when i arrived but in a year i was fluent that's very impressive not really english is an easy language you should try latvian he laughed and reached for a jangling chain of keys around his belt he pulled off a set and handed it to me you will need these for individual rooms and there are codes you need to know for the wards that's a lot i had fewer keys at boardmore yeah well we stepped up security quite a bit recently since stephanie joined us who's stephanie you didn't reply but nodded at women emerging from the office behind the reception desk she was caribbean in her mid 40s with a sharp angular bob i am stephanie clerk she said manager of the group stephanie gave me an unconvincing smile as i shook her hand i noticed her grip was firmer and tighter than yuri's and rather less welcoming as a manager of this unit she said safety is my top priority both the safety of the patient and of the staff if you aren't safe then neither are your patient she proceeded to hand me small device a personal attack alarm 
carry this with you at all times don't just leave it in your office i resisted the inclination to say yes ma'am better keep on the right side of her if i wanted to if i wanted an easy life that had been my tactic with previous bossy ward managers avoid confrontation and keep under their radar good to meet you stephanie i said smiling stephanie nodded but didn't smile back curie will show you to your office she turned and marched off without a second glance follow me yuri said i went with him to the ward entrance a large reinforced steel door next to it a metal detector was manned by a security guard i am sure you know the drill yuri said no sharp objects nothing that could be used as a weapon no lighters added the security guard as he frisked frisked me fishing my lighter from the pocket with an accusing look sorry i said i forgot i had it yuri beckoned me to follow him i will show you to your office he said everyone in the committee community meeting so it's pretty quiet can i join them in community yuri looked surprised you don't want to settle in first i can settle in later if it's all the same to you he shrugged whatever you want this way he led me down interconnecting corridors punctuated by locked doors a rhythm of slam a rhythm of slams and bolts and key turning in locks he made slow progress it was obvious not much had been spent on the upkeep of the building in several years paint was crawling away from the walls and a faint musty smell of mildew and clay permeated and corridors yuri stopped outside a closed door and nodded they are in there he said go ahead okay thanks i hesitated preparing myself then i opened the door and went inside my name is theo fabo i am 42 years old and i became a psychotherapist because i was fucked up that's the truth though it's not what i said during the job interview when the question was put to me what drew you to psychotherapy do you think asked indira sharma peering at me over the rim of her owlish glasses indira was a consultant psychotherapist at the grove she was in her late 50s with a round attractive face and long jet back hair streaked with gray she gave me a small smile as if to reassure me this was an easy question a warm up volley a precursor of trickier shots to follow i hesitated i could feel other member of the panel looking at me i remained unconscious of maintaining eye contact as i trotted out a rehearsed response a sympathetic 
tale about working part-time in a car home as a teenager and how this inspired an interest in psychology which in turn led to a postgraduate study of psychotherapy and so on i wanted to help people i suppose i said with a shrug that's it really which was bullshit i mean of course i wanted to help people but that was a secondary aim particularly at the time i started training the real motive was purely selfish i was on a quest to help myself i believed the same is true for most people who go into mental health we are drawn to this particular profession because we are damaged we study psychology to heal ourselves whether we are prepared to admit this or not is another question as human being our earliest years reside in a land before memory we like to think of ourselves as emerging from this from this primordial fog with our characters fully formed like aphrodite rising perfect from the sea foam but thanks to increasing research into the development of our brain we know this is not the case we are born with a brain half formed more like a muddy lump of clay that uh, of an divine olympian as the psychoanalyst donald winnicott put it there is no such thing as the baby the development of our personalities doesn't take place in isolation but in relationship with other we are shaped and completed by unseen unremembered forces namely our parents this is frightening for obvious reason who knows what indignities we suffer what torments and abuses in this land before memory our character was formed without us even knowing it in my case i grew up feeling edgy afraid anxious this anxiety seemed to predate my existence and exist independently of me but i suspect it originated in my relationship with my father around whom i was never safe my father's unpredictable and arbitrary rages made any situation no matter how benign into a potential minefield an innocuous remark or a dissenting voice would trigger his anger and set off a series of explosions from which there was no refuge the house shook as he shouted chasing me upstairs into my room i would drive into the bed and slide under it against the wall i would breathe in a feathery air praying the bricks would shallow me up and i would disappear but his hand would grab hold of me drag me out of to meet my fate the belt would be pulled off and i wrestled in the air before it struck each successive blow knocking me sideways 
burning my flesh then the wiping would be over as abruptly as it had begun i would be tossed to the floor landing in a crumpled heap a rage doll discarded by an anger toddler i was never sure what i had done to trigger his anger or if i deserve it i have asked my mother why my father was always so angry with me and she would give a disappearing shrug and say how should i know your father is completely mad when she said he was mad she wasn't joking where he to be assessed by a psychiatric today i suspect my father would be diagnosed with a personality disorder an illness which went untreated for a duration of his life the result was a childhood and adolescence dominated by hysteria and physical violence threats tears and breaking glass there were moments of happiness of course usually when my father was away from home i remembered one winter when he was in america on a business trip for a month for 30 days my mother and i had free reign of the house and garden without his watchful eyes i snowed heavily in london that december and the whole of the of our garden was buried beneath a thick crisp white carpet mum and i had made a snowman unconsciously or not we built him to represent our absent master i christened him dad and with his big belly two black stone eyes two slanted twigs from stone eyebrows there was indeed an uncanny resemblance we completed the illusion by giving him my father's gloves hat and umbrella and we then proceeded to pelt him violently with snowballs giggling like naughty children there was a heavy snowstorm that night my mother went to bed and i pretended to sleep then i snuck out of the garden and stood under the falling snow i held my hand outstretched catching flakes watching them vanish on my hand tips i felt joyous and frustrating at the same time and i spoke to some truth i couldn't express my vocabulary was so limited my words too loose a net in which to catch it somehow grasping at vanishing snowflakes is looking grasping at happiness an act of possession which instantly give way to nothing it reminded me that there was a world outside this house a world of vastness and unimaginable beauty a world that for now remained out of my reach that memory had returned repeatedly to me over this year it's as if the misery that surrounded it made the grief moment of freedom born even brighter a tiny light surrounded my darkness my only hope of survival i realized was to retreat psychically as well as physically i had to get away far away only then i would be safe 
and eventually at 18 I got the grace. I needed to secure a place at university. I left that semi-detached prison in Surrey and I thought I was free. I was wrong. I didn't know it then but it was too late. I had internalized my father's, interjected him, buried him deep in my unconsciousness. No matter how far I ran, I carried him with me whenever I went. I was pursued by an internal relentless chorus of furies all with his voice, shrinking that I was worthless, shameful failure. During my first term at university, that first cold winter, the voices got so bad, so paralyzing that controlled me, immobilized my fear. I was unable to go out, socialize or make friends. I might as well have never left home. It was hopeless. I was defeated, trapped, backed into a corner, no way out. Only one solution presented itself. I went from chemist to chemist buying packets of paracetamol. I bought only a few packets at a time to avoid arousing suspicion. But I needn't have worried. No one paid me the least attention. I was clearly as invisible as I felt. It was cold in my room and my fingers were numb and clumsy as I tore the open packets. It took an immense effort to shallow all the tablets but I forced them all down. Pill after bitter pill. Then I crawled into my uncomfortable narrow bed. I shut my eyes and waited for death. But death didn't come. Instead, a shearing gut-wrench pain tore through my insides. I doubled up and vomited, throwing up bile and half-digested pills all over myself. I lay in the dark, a fire burning in my stomach for what seemed like eternity. And then slowly in darkness, I realized something. I didn't want to die, not yet, not when I haven't lived. And this gave me a kind of hope, however murky and ill defined it propelled at me any rate to acknowledge that i couldn't do this alone i needed help i found it in the form of roth a psychotherapist referred to me through the university counseling service ruth was white-haired and plump and there was something grandmotherly about her she had a sympathetic smile a smile i wanted to believe in she didn't say much at first she just listened while I talked. I talked about my childhood, my home, my parents. And as I talked, I found that no matter how distressing the details I relate, I could feel nothing. I was disconnected from my emotions, like a hand served from a wrist. I talked about painful memories and suicidal impulses but couldn't feel them. I would however occasionally look up at Ruth's face and to my surprise tears would be collecting in her eyes as she listened. This may seem hard to grasp but those tears were not hers.
they were mine at the time i didn't understand but that's how therapy works a patient delegates his unacceptable feelings to his therapist and she holds everything he is afraid to feel and she feels it for him and then ever so slowly she feeds his feelings back to him as ruth fed mine back to me we continued seeing each other for several years ruth and i she remained the one constant in my life through her i internalized a new kind of relationship with other human being one based on mutual respect honesty and kindness not redistributing anger and violence i slowly started to feel differently inside about myself less empty more capable of feeling less afraid the hateful internal chorus never entirely left me but i now had ruth's voice to counter it and i paid less attention as a result the voices in my head grew quieter and would temporarily vanish i would feel peaceful and happy sometimes it was obvious that psychotherapy had quite literally saved my life and more importantly it had transformed the quality of that life the talking cure was central to whom i became in the very profound sense it defined me it was i knew my vocation after university i trained a psychotherapist in london throughout my training i continued seeing ruth she remained supportive and encouraging although she warned me to be realistic about the path i was undertaking it's no walk in the parks was how she put it she was right working with patients getting my hands dirty well it proved far from comfortable i remember my first visit to secure psychiatric unit within a few minutes of my arrival a patient had pulled down his pants squatted and defected in front of me a stinking pile of shit and subsequent incidents less stomach churning but just as dramatic messy both suicidal attempts as self harm uncontained hysteria and grief all felt more than i could bear but each time somehow i drew into hitherto untrapped resilience it got easier it's odd how quickly one adapts to strange new world of a psychiatric unit you became increasingly comfortable with madness and not just the madness of others but your own we are all crazy i believed just in different ways which is why and how i related to elicia berenson i was one of the lucky ones thanks to successful therapeutic intervention at a young age i was able to pull back from the brink of psychic darkness in my mind however the other narrative remained forever a possibility i might have gone crazy and ended my days locked in an institution like elysia there but for the grace of god of course i couldn't say 
any of this to Indira Sharma. When she asked why I became a psychotherapist, it was an interview panel after all, and if nothing else, I knew how to play the game. In the end, I said, I believe the training makes you into a psychotherapist, regardless of your initial intention, Indra nodded sagely. Yes, quite right. Very true. The interview went well. My experience of working at Boardmore gave me an edge. Indira said, demonstrating I could cope with extreme psychological distress, I was offered the job on the spot and I accepted. One month later, I was on my way to the crew. Chapter 4 I arrived at the crew. Pursued by an icy January wind, the bare trees stood like skeletons along the road. The sky was white, heavy with snow that had yet to fall. I stood outside the entrance and reached for my cigarettes in my pocket. I hadn't smoked in a week. I would promise myself that this time I meant it. I would quit for good. Yet here I was, already giving in. I lit one feeling annoyed with myself. Psychotherapists tend to view smoking as an unresolved addiction, one that any decent therapist should have worked through and overcome. I didn't want to walk in reeking in cigarettes, so I popped a couple of mints into my mouth. I chewed them while I smoked, hopping from foot to foot. I was shivering, but if I am honest, it was more with nervous than cold. I was having doubts. My consultant at Boardmore had made no bones about saying I was making a mistake. He hinted a promising career was being cut short by my departure and he was sniffy about the groove, the professor Diomedes in a particular. An unorthodox, an unorthodox man does a lot work with group relations, worked with folks for a while, ran some kind of alternative therapeutic community in 80s in Hertfordshire. Not economically viable, those models of therapy, especially today. He hesitated a second, then went on in a lower voice. I am not trying to scare you though, but I have heard rumbling about that place getting aged. You would find yourself out of a job in six months. Are you sure you won't reconsider? I hesitated, but only out of politeness. Quite sure, I said. He shook his head, seems like curiously sad to me. But if you have made your decision, I didn't tell him about Alicia Berenson, about my desire to treat her. I could have put it in terms he might understand, that working with her might lead to a book of publications of some kind. 
but i knew there was a little point he would still say i was making a mistake perhaps he was right i was about to find out i stubbed out my cigarette banished my nerve and went inside the groove was located in oldest part of edware hospital the original red brick victorian building had long since been surrounded and dropped by larger and generally uglier additions and extensions the groove lay in the heart of this complex the only hint of this dangerous occupant was the line of security camera pressed on the fence like watching birds of prey in the reception every effort have been made to make it appear friendly large bro couches crude childish artwork by the patients taped to the walls it looked to me more like a kindergarten than a secure psychiatric unit a tall man appeared at my side he grinned at me and held out his hand he introduced himself yuri head psychiatric nurse welcome to the groove he said not much for a welcoming committee i am afraid just me yuri was good looking well built and in his late 30s he had dark hair and a tribal tattoo creeping up his neck above his collar he smelled of tobacco and too much sweet sweet after shave and although he spoke with an accent his english was perfect i moved here from latvia 7 years ago he said and i didn't speak a word of english when i arrived but in a year i was fluent that's very impressive not really english is an easy language you should try latvian he laughed and reached for a jangling chain of keys around his belt he pulled off a set and handed it to me you will need these for individual rooms and there are codes you need to know for the wards that's a lot i had fewer keys at boardmore yeah well we stepped up security quite a bit recently since stephanie joined us who stephanie you didn't reply but nodded at women emerging from the office behind the reception desk she was caribbean in her mid 40s with a sharp angular bob i am stephanie clark she said manager of the group stephanie gave me an unconvincing smile as i shook her hand i noticed her grip was firmer and tighter than yuri's and rather less welcoming as a manager of this unit she said safety is my top priority both the safety of the patient and of the staff if you aren't safe then neither are your patient she proceeded to hand me small device a personal attack alarm carry this with you at all times don't just leave it in your office 
I resisted the inclination to say yes ma'am better keep on the right side of her if I wanted to if I wanted an easy life that had been my tactic with previous bossy ward managers avoid confrontation and keep under their radar good to meet you stephanie i said smiling stephanie nodded but didn't smile back curie will show you to your office she turned and marched off without a second glance follow me yuri said i went with him to the ward entrance a large reinforced steel door next to it a metal detector was manned by a security guard i am sure you know the drill yuri said no sharp objects nothing that could be used as a weapon no lighters added the security guard as he frisked frisked me fishing my lighter from the pocket with an accusing look sorry i said i forgot i had it yuri beckoned me to follow him i will show you to your office he said everyone in the committee community meeting so it's pretty quiet can i join them in community yuri looked surprised you don't want to settle in first i can settle in later if it's all the same to you he shrugged whatever you want this way he led me down interconnecting corridors punctuated by locked doors a rhythm of slam a rhythm of slams and bolts and key turning in locks he made slow progress it was obvious not much had been spent on the upkeep of the building in several years paint was crawling away from the walls and a faint musty smell of mildew and clay permeated and corridors yuri stopped outside a closed door and nodded they are in there he said go ahead okay thanks i hesitated preparing myself then i opened the door and went inside